Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. My name is John Mickton. I'm your co-host, Dan. Our co-host is not here today. will be joining us next time. Uh, as we think of schools, and many schools, of course, depend on their leadership teams. Their leadership teams provide often uh, guidance and facilitation. They also uh, provide a point of context when working with missions and visions and philosophies. And they're there to support, lead, and uh, mentor a variety of different people. And Dan is here. This is great. Hey, Dan, I just said you weren't here. I apologize. So just reintroducing Dan. Uh, I just did my little intro, but I'm going to stop. And that's what we're all about. Hi, Dan. Nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you guys. Sorry I'm late. Please uh, carry on. (laughs) Yeah, anyway, uh, so I was just kind of framing the idea that schools have leaders, and leaders are really key components to the mix with staff, of course, and students. And uh, being a school leader in international schools can be challenging because you have many different voices, different perspective, different needs, and there are different pressures. People come to you often with problems, sometimes with solutions, but I would say the biggest percentage is their problems that they would like you to engage with, solve, or point them in the right direction. And the time and workload is quite intense and for everybody, educators and leaders included. But I think one thing that we all know, we've all had bosses and managers and leaders that we've worked with, that we've worked under or we have worked as, and it's full of complexity. And I don't think there's a better person in the world than to have Carlos Davidich, who uh, is a uh, coach and does a lot of work in neuro management and has just released a book called Five Brain Leadership. And if you haven't had a chance to look at his TED Talk, go online and look at his TED Talks about Five Brain Leadership. Uh, Carlos, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It's a real pleasure and honor to have you here, especially now that you are famous by a TED Talk and you have uh, your second book out. Just uh, welcome. And if you don't mind just quickly introducing yourself before we kick into your specialty, which is Bully Leaders. Okay, first of all, thanks a lot for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here and to participate in this podcast. I mean, such an important one uh, because it's the number one in the list of podcasts, of educational podcasts. So this is amazing. Number one in a very specific list. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very specific, very narrow. (laughs) No problem, the number one, that's a matter. So, no, that's great. So, really, really delighted to be here. I, I'm, I'm, I, I had a chance uh, to meet you, John, in international schools um, and, and, and get along with, with a lot of experience there in education. So, uh, in a nutshell, I'm uh, born and raised in, in Argentina. I'm MD, a medical doctor, and working as medical doctor many years. At the same time, I started working in pharmaceutical business in the area of biotechnology, quite specific niche. Then in 2000, I moved to Europe and I, ha- I had to reinvent it myself. No more, no more medicine, no more pharma. And I ended working in leadership development 
and in this area called neuromanagement that in one word or in, in one sentence is how to bring practical tips on how the brain works in organizations and business. When I say organizations, I mean, it's about human behavior in the end, but to understand better why people behave in certain way based on how our brain is working. Just one more thing, I had a... The, the opportunity to work and live in Toronto, in Canada for seven years. That was an amazing experience. And now I'm back in Europe and I'm uh, located in Madrid, outside Madrid. So I think, okay, already already John talked about the, the TED talk and the books. That was really something important that happened, happened last year. I don't know, I think it's enough, John, by now. So let's, let's go on. Thank you, Carlos. Uh, I think the one thing that when I met you and we got to know each other in a variety of different contexts, and we've actually even created a presentation about adaptability quotient, is this fact that you actually focused on bully CEOs. In other words, yeah. CEOs and leaders that are bullies. And I'm just curious what defines a bully leader. What is a bully leader? What do they look like? You know, men and women, of course. Uh, but why that niche? And what is it about them that's so interesting? Okay. Uh, why I became, let's say, kind of an expert. I say it in a funny way, of course. And this, I cannot tell you because I don't know. I mean, I started bullying. I started coaching this kind of personality. Let, let's change the terminology because sometimes bully sounds very aggressive or, or or not nice for people. Let's talk about, I would say, intense personalities. You know, I mean, uh, even how, in the way they define themselves as a passionate personality. So uh, I had a chance to, to coach many of them and to learn a lot from them, a lot. Uh, it was a fantastic and amazing, let's say, path to follow and today that gave me the opportunity to to really understand a little bit more what exactly those behavior means in a context when in one side they are they are needed and in the other side then they don't know how to stop them so it's it's a very it's a paradoxical situation with people let's call it with this kind of more direct intense personality that of course the main issue is sometimes the the blind spot or the gap between their intent and their impact so if you want i mean i go i go deeper on this i don't know john or you have a specific question to ask well or i, I can think just expand I on this What's interesting is we're in an international school context. And one thing that I and I, I know Dan uh, works with a lot of school leaders around the world. One thing which is quite interesting, international school leaders actually have a fair of autonomy. They do they do report back to the board, but they are very much often a single act, be it women or men, wherever they are in the world. There is a lot, a fair amount of power. Uh, associated with those positions. Is it fact or not? But there's a perception. And you've worked with a lot of school leaders too, Carlos. I yeah, don't know. Absolutely. Dan, what do you think about the sense of autonomy from your experience when you think of the school leaders you've interacted with? 
Yeah, I think you're right, John. I, I don't think. think... Oh, sorry. Okay, sorry, sorry, I was Dan. about to go ahead. Dan. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Dan. Go ahead, Dan. Go ahead, please. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I think um, school leaders do have a lot of intent, a lot of autonomy. Um, they're also often it depends on the school, doesn't it? If it's, it's a lot of the for-profit schools, that they have less. I would say that they're part of a group often who that tells them to behave in a certain way. I think um, they have autonomy, but often schools the leaders are beholden to the board. You know, there's a board, and often they kind of become the boss of, of the leader in, in a school context. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm just thinking in that context, you know, you talk about bully leaders. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not trying to, I just think the concept of somebody that's very passionate, very, maybe not aggressive, but quite determined and a lot of good intent, but the impact often is not there. What, why is that? Why are people that are often perceived as bullies from by other people, but they themselves, they have good intent, they're thinking really hard. They're thinking about the organization, and but the impact creates that perception of being a bully. So, following what Dan said, I mean, definitely the board became the boss of the CEO of the, of the leader, let's say, a director of the school. I don't think that to to have that autonomy is an issue. The issue is the personality. So the autonomy could be okay, could be fine. And always there is a, I don't know if I call it paradoxical situation. The board, most of the time, is more than okay with this kind of people because they keep everything under control. And most of the time, they are very effective and productive. So they will get things done. And that's what the board wants to see. When the conflict starts appearing, when somebody starts complaining, you know, from these people, about these people, and then the board needs to do something. But what I observed in my experience in schools or in companies is that the board or the yeah, people above, let's say the, the bully, they, they don't do anything until the moment there is a conflict. Uh, because until that moment, results are there Things are done. People are okay. Are quiet. I mean, there are no. It's no conflictive situation. So they are. They are absolutely fine. Um, I. I always my question was how much they already they knew about this and before something came up, like somebody complaining or something, somebody that that threatened threatened the organization to sue the organization. Happens to me several times. Where they say, no, the problem is that this person, okay, had this situation with the CEO, the leader, the director, and is telling us they're going to sue the organization. We don't want that. And always my question was, sorry, you didn't know about this before? So there is kind of a, yeah. I would say, gray area. And because, again, because they, they bring results, the school will will work fantastically well, will perform. Normally, the influence of these people is mainly in the next level, so not that much in the following levels. So this is about the, the leadership team, you know, in the school. And also depends how it interacts, depends on the personality. What I'm trying to say is definitely 
from the human behavior side, or let's say the healthy psychological environment in the organization, of course, it's very negative. That's for sure it's negative. But from the productive efficiency in the system, normally they, they know their job and they're very good doing their job. Even though when I have the first meeting, because they ask me to coach this type of personality, I already follow some kind of protocol that I created myself. But the number one question is, and I ask to these people is, listen, why you will you 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 would like to change your style when you were very successful till today so normally remember we're talking about c level or directors or people yeah. that are leading the top level so all their career was based in that personality so in their mindset why this is bad i'm successful I'm getting results. What's the point? So then my first question, first day of, of a meeting, let's meeting these people is, you need to give me a reason strong enough that will show that you are really, really motivated to make a change. If not, I'm not in because it's a waste of time for you, for the board, and for me. So what I want to see is what is the level of awareness that they have. And normally it's not that high. Um, <laughs> regarding the impact. And it's so interesting because I, I, I use the word passionate on purpose because another question I ask is how you define, how do you define your style of communication? 100% of them will say passionate. And that's the moment that I say, okay, some the impact will call it aggressive, no passionate, and that is something that is, is most of the time is the key point to work during the whole process of coaching to understand that gap, to understand the impact. Even though these people they love to be challenged, and the people will fight them back, but nobody will do it. How are you going to do that with somebody? They can be very aggressive and nobody wants to get into this situation. So again, we are in catch 22. If I don't tell you something that I, mean, I don't agree with you, you will react even worse. But if I tell you, you we will get into a conversation. I don't want to get into them. I, I don't know if I make sense what I'm saying so far. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they will confront people that normally will not challenge them because they don't want to get into any, let's say, conflict. And they say, you can challenge me all the time. And that's true. That is true. They love to be challenged. Yeah, but you need to have the personality to do it. <laughs> you know, Because it's, it's not going to be a nice conversation for sure. In the end, maybe the, you go for a coffee or a beer and everything is fine for them. But people don't. It's hard to understand that dynamic. Make sense? Yeah. Yep. So, Carlos, often, you know, leaders that are passionate and being successful, their measure of success might not be what teachers think is a measure of success, which might be yeah. empathy, uh, being teacher-centric. 
their measure of success might be more for the board. The numbers are up, the strategic vision, the new buildings being put in. So these are maybe things that sometimes feel removed from the day-to-day -day demands and needs and aspirations of teachers. And there's kind of this disconnect. Why do you think so often leaders sometimes are disconnected from what's happening on the ground floor? What is it about the leadership role or what is it about leadership dispositions that often make this disconnect where somebody, you know, leader says, oh, I didn't know that was happening or, you know, or when they speak, people are like, what are you talking about? You have no idea what my day is like. There is a third situation I want to bring here. The third situation is they can be bullies with the leadership team, with the next level. And they can be very charming with the rest. Because they consider yep. that people reporting directly to them are the responsible of everything. In a good and a bad way. But when they go to walk around the school and talk about other teachers, whatever, they don't, they are not in direct relationship, they can be very nice. Most of the time they are very, very charming. I mean, they, they really can be very nice. But with those that they don't have direct relationship. Makes sense what I'm saying? Yeah. So that is one pattern as well. So they will be very tough with direct reports because those are the ones that they think they, they have the full responsibility and they need to respond in the way they want. This is one pattern. The other one is people that will behave in the same way, whatever level. That is not that usual. So uh, I, I met... Normally, the, the 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 target is the the team, the direct team that are reporting to this person. No, in general, I don't know, if John. You have a different experience, or Dan, as well. That's fascinating. I'm just thinking, actually, in my own context. I'm obviously a leader of, of my own uh, sort of small organization. I've, I think, like anyone, you struggle with this at times. It's not a black or white thing, but you definitely do. Now, I'm wondering if there's another part because I'm again trying to think of my own context, and I think. The times when I've like, like if you kind of think of people as kind of A, a and B players, I know that's a very simplistic look, but it's just from the perspective of the leader. This, For me, I think if I've worked with people and they've been really good, I've just like, do whatever you want. Cool. I don't care. You know, the, the issue, I guess, has been with people who, by my perception or a leader's perception, like maybe they're not, they're not trying hard enough they're not doing it and, and it's sometimes just like ah just do it and i think that's that's the people i guess i would have had the issue with in the past i wonder if that's also a typical pattern and, and, where, and where that comes from well depends on on the also in the context another thing i want to bring here is and i, I work a lot when i coach this type of personality is to one is to differentiate the gap between intent and impact and the other one is between context and content right. because they are they are most of them are brilliant they know a lot about the job so most of the time they are right the content is correct the problem is the context is how they say it right and that, that that's what makes the whole difference so then we need to work in a complete and even though and I will bring something from my TED talk, John, if you don't mind. Uh, they believe they are very rational people. And the real definition of the behavior is 
the rational side is absolutely hijacked by the reptilian or the instinctual brain, let's call it. So they are all the time moving in survival mode. But if we talk about fight, flight, or freeze, they fight. That's their style. Yeah. And that provokes that the rest of the people will be in defensive mode. So trying to fly, to fly away or to freeze. Makes sense what I'm saying? So what I'm trying to say is they also have, so we are talking about different misconceptions. Context, content, intent, impact, and also rational domination, rational brain versus instinctual brain. So I will not get into the definition of different brains, but there is one very primitive that we call the reptilian that is exactly, is exactly the one that is, I will say, leading any kind of conversation that comes from this kind of personality. The, the law of the reptilian brain is zero sum game. So I win, you lose, or vice versa. It's win-lose. There's no win-win uh, at all. It's a very contagious brain. And the moment that the person will react in this way provokes a similar thing on others. So it's everyone is moving in this kind of dance that is not productive. And because people are with fears, they are not productive. Then what happened? They, they feel that they need to take care of everything because they can't. So normally I might, our micro, micromanager are normally are very, very control freaks because again, they, they are very good technically talking. What they don't realize that they are provoking the situation that they don't like. They are the trigger. That's also a blind spot. Make sense? Yeah. So in Dan's a situation basically dan is very comfortable when people are very efficient and do a good job to give them full autonomy he's like good go and and doesn't feel like but it's the people that aren't doing good jobs where suddenly dan says hold on i need to micromanage you because this is not working that's that's a different type of that that's actually for me when i hear that dan that just makes smart leadership basically you worry about the people that aren't performing and the people that are performing you let go am i right but dan sorry i want to clarify something because i didn't respond to your question properly. sure sure of course when you are working with people are not performing and you need yeah. to be more in charge, let's call it that way, that we can call it micromanaging, or we can call it that those people need more support from you. So we use micromanaging, micromanaging as a negative way because yeah. the way to do, because again, the context, the way to do it is not good. Yeah. So I will make you feel that you are useless. I will make you feel that you're really not good. That is the micromanaging in a negative way. Supporting somebody that is not doing the work well, then I can support that person or try to help that person in a positive way. So teaching these people, developing, whatever. The condition is, and my question to you, Dan, do you believe that those people can really 
make it make it better or you think that they can't because that makes a whole difference what do you believe about them yeah that's a good i mean there's been different circumstances over the years i would say some people i would believe that I couldn't make them better and usually we're probably not working together anymore. But I'd say most I believed, I'd say generally my default view is that people could be better. Okay. Then you're not micromanaging, you're developing people. It's a different concept. Depends how you do it. Interesting, Depends yeah. the way you talk to them. So you can talk not in a nice way and then really you are being sarcastic, let's say, That is a negative micromanage. Yeah. Or you can tell, uh, try to teach them how to do it better. There's a different story. And I'm very, I'm, I mean, I'm very keen to, to reinforce the concept of how much do you believe they can develop, they can grow or not. Because if you don't believe on that, forget it. It's not going to work. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah, because very likely, if you don't believe in them, they're going to pick up on that because automatically the language and you talked about language being really important, then somehow, you know, if I think somebody's not good, my language is just not going to be very supportive, you know, however, you know, hard I try. So I think that's a really important point uh, is that you kind of have to believe in that. But one of the things that, you know, I think as a leader, it's really hard to please everybody. So if you go to the coffee cooler or water cooler or the coffee machine and you go into a staff room, you're always going to hear people complaining. But pretty much some leaders say, I can't do anything right. You know, every time I have good intent, it doesn't work. And I think what you're trying to say is that you have to be far more aware and far more self-reflective as when you hear that not say oh these people don't know what they're thinking or they don't know what they're doing but saying what am i bringing to the table that is causing that and i think that awareness is what maybe is sometimes difficult you're stating with these uh ceo bullies or school leader bullies is their capacity to self-reflect and say you know what i should really look the way i'm speaking and acting do you think that is a challenge for that mindset of person absolutely i want to say something else regarding dan's comment uh this i'm sure you heard both of you of the pygmalion effect have you heard about that in leadership yes no no i haven't Do you remember my fair lady? Yeah, <laughs> old, I've, seen old. I've seen it. Yeah, <laughs> you're dating us, Carlos. Fair... <laughs> yeah, yeah, my okay. My fair lady is was based in a mythological story and is the myth of Pygmalion. Pygmalion, Pygmalion was an ex... it's okay that I share the story because this this happened, yeah, this was translated to leadership. Yeah, yeah, of course. Pygmalion was in a sculptor, yeah? And he was sculpting a woman from a marble, yeah, piece. The, the statue, the, I mean, was so perfect that he fell in love with that creation. And his desire was that that piece of stone became human. So he was, let's say, praying to all the goddess, the gods, and finally one god came down from the Olympus and gave life to the 
Stero, I mean, to the, to the piece of marble. The name was Cassandra, by the way. He also put the name. Pygmalion effect means if you believe that somebody can do it better, the probability that we'll do it better is almost 100%. If you don't, it's exactly the opposite. So that's why in leadership, we talk about the Pygmalion effect. And I tell you one more thing. When I coach people that ref, ref, they refer to some member in the team, they are not performing well. That is my first question. Do you believe that person can get better, can improve, can, can really evolve? Yes or no? If the answer is no, my next comment is let this person go the soonest possible because you are affecting that person. It's not by you. It's about them. Now that's, that's self a really esteem, Self-esteem, self-confidence, and sometimes changing the leader, that person will perform well. I mean, it's, it's about how they connect. Make sense? Yeah, Carlos, I've got a question because that's fascinating. But what about, there's often a situation in international schools, John may have come across this, where as a leader, you've got someone in your team who is not performing, but you know you don't always have the authority to say, I'm sorry, it's not working out. You have to leave. How do you, is there a way to sort of learn to live with someone you don't think can change? Or, or is it, do you have to change your own? I mean, how, how do you deal with that situation? You know? Well, I, I, it's, it's not easy, I tell you. It's not easy. <laughs> today, to be honest, today we were talking about exactly that situation with one client. Yeah. And my, recommend, my comment was de define the job description that you believe that person can do really can do now they should do it's a good point if you cannot fire or let this person go to look for a better place in another company whatever organization then limit the expectations and try to give the opportunity to work on something you think that person can do but don't expect anything else you know <laughs> that's it <laughs> So you yeah. need to manage yourself regarding expectation. Sure. In this case was a person in a team of very high performing people. And this person was not able to do more than one task. That was it, the whole story. Was good doing one task. Okay. And I told the leader, forget about the rest. If you cannot let this person go, then be clear about the job description and live with it. Because there's no other choice. Interesting. But it's stop with expectations. Yep. That's really interesting. So, Carlos, how do you talk to a leader that is coming to you and saying, you know, everything I try to do, uh, you know, people are complaining. They only come with problems. They only come with problems. And how can you maybe change that when your, uh, your staff or your team keep coming to you with problems and they expect this whole you know knight in shining armor syndrome which is i think called dorman's triangle right the uh, yeah. victim the savior and the perpetrator exactly and so what you know for a lot of leaders 
all day, if they're only answering problems or being confronted by problems and people aren't saying, hey, I've noticed this problem, but these are my two different solutions I would like to go and do. Are you okay with that? How do you switch to that? Because so often people feel like, you know, all they're doing is putting out fires. When the leader, my client is the leader and the leader says, my my team members are complaining all the time. I The focus is on the leader, it's not on the team. If the leader will say, I have one person that is a complainer, that's a different story. When the whole team is behaving in that way, that was triggered by the leader for because of two situations. Normally the leader, in this case, is the one that wants to solve everything. Then the team members learned the lesson. The lesson is he or she wants to solve everything. Then we just need to come and tell what is the problem. So those are the people that always wants to go with their opinion. Make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. So they are creating, they are no, they are perpetuating the victim mode because they love to feel saviors. But it's a vicious circle because you cannot get out of there unless you cut the victim mode. And the way to cut it is very simple, but you need to be convinced to do it. And it's exactly what you said, John. I My recommendation is, you already said it, but it's always, A, you need to meet with your team and tell them we have a new rule in our team you cannot come to me with a complaint without at least one or two proposals of a solution yeah. if you don't have it don't come this is a very traditional thing in leadership but people don't do it because it's very easy to fall in the savior mode and in that moment Again, you are the one provoking the situation. Don't blame on them. And you right. are, have the power to stop it. Because at the moment they know they need to bring something, I tell you, the level of complaints will go down almost to zero. Why do you point. think then, Carlos, that's a great point. And I think it's just a great strategy to say, yeah, just come with solutions. What is it about human beings? And this is a very kind of big, big question. So sorry. Uh, why do you think teachers become leaders? Why do they become principals and school directors? You know, some of it, of course, might be financial gain. Some of it might be status. How do those two play? Or some might be that they have a passion and they want to change the world. They have a vision. They have a philosophy and they really want to have an impact on many people. What, what is kind of in the, this mix of rationale why people become leaders in a school setting or in a company setting? What, what have you noticed? All of the above. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Mainly, is it, is it all is it above ma mainly, John, ma mainly it's a personality characteristic not everyone wants not to be leaders so there is a personality trait that they enjoy to lead people or to sometimes because it's a 
is a true feel. I mean, to help people, to develop people, or sometimes it's about power, period. And that's why I said all of the above. So, uh, oh, because you you were very clear. I mean, if I'm a leader, I get my salary would be different, of course. But that involves a lot of responsibility. That's what some people don't, or many people don't understand. To become a leader is a whole story. I like to say it is not mine, of course, but leadership is a profession by itself. And what companies or organizations do normally is we will promote you. Now, tomorrow you are a leader. Zero education, zero preparation. So they expect that you will just know how to do it. That is one of the huge mistakes in organization. So nobody can do can work on something that doesn't know how it works. And independently of the sector or the type of work, if you become a leader, is to have two jobs at the same time. And then you need to learn about it. There are techniques, there are tricks. There are a lot of things to learn about leadership. The reason that there are thousands of books on leadership every launched every year is because nobody knows what is the solution. In, med- <laughs> in, medicine, in medicine, we have a saying. When, when there are too many treatments for one disease, means there's no treatment. Because, you know, you try different things, but it means there's no treatment. Yeah. The treatment normally is one thing or two. That's it, period. Very direct. But when there are so many, when there are too many options to treat the disease, means it doesn't have treatment. There's not. In leadership, it's the same thing. When there are so many books about leadership, because it still is a huge challenge. John, so, gonna, sorry, John, I have a question for you um, in a school context. Obviously, you've worked in a lot of different schools. You know, there's, there's a kind of quote that, people get promoted to their own level of, of incompetence. I'm not sure if they yes. use like jokes yes. or what people say. But no, do you no, yeah, think yeah. in schools, there's a lot of people who like go down a leadership path because they think they don't, they want to, I don't want to stay as an IT tech. I don't want to stay as a teacher. You know, I don't want, I, I don't want that status. I want to move. And actually they're not suited to be leaders and maybe don't want to, but they, they go down that path. Do you, do you think that, do you, do you, have you seen that? Yeah, I've seen reluctant leaders. Yeah, reluctant leaders, I call oh, them. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, And and I think sometimes also, and I think Carlos, that's a good point, you know, leadership, there's so many books and there's so many different strategies. And Dan and I have had the real privilege of talking to school leaders on this podcast. And we were just reminiscing during our hundredth anniversary podcast, hundredth episode, not our years. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but just how we talked to three different leaders and it was like three different individuals, different approaches, different perspectives. And there were some, there was some, you know, a crossover, but each one really came with a very definite kind of perspective. Is that because human nature and leadership is a human skill and it's not something that's technical? Is it because it's all about human emotion personality is that too hard to define and really give a set menu of things you need to do first of all there is a lack of education to become a leader that's what i want to say the way you will apply 
leadership techniques will depend on your personality. There is no pattern. There are different types of leaders, even though there are different fashions of leaders. The absolutely the wrong concept is the, 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 the leader as somebody on a white horse with a sword. You know what I mean? So that we, it's coming to save the world. That is exactly the opposite of a leader. What the leader should be. The techniques can be applied to different type of by different type of personality. The answer is yes. Being a leader implies a lot of human aspects, empathy, rational thinking. Yeah, it's true. But sorry, any other work implies the same. Mm. Let's not miss the point. So if you success in any kind of sector, in any kind of work, it's about relationship. It's about you connect with people. Unless you work by yourself in your house, I mean, 24-7, and that's it. I mean, just deliver product like a robot. But what I'm trying to say is the human factor is involved in everything. Leadership, as a profession, I want to call it, I like to call it, has techniques, has very concrete techniques. The way that involves, of course, soft skills, what is called wrongly called soft skills. Those things can be applied in different ways. You know that now we talk a lot about the servant leadership. That is a lot even at school because it's, it's like the ideal model of leadership. I don't think it's an ideal model. It's an effective model when people are taken into consideration in the right way. So I don't know if you remember a very old book called From Good to Great. That yeah, was Jim, Coll Jim Collins. And I like to refer to this book in this way. The book was about a research comparing successful company with not successful company in the same sector after 15 years in the market. That was the research. He, Collins, didn't want to talk about leadership at all. That was not part of the research. His team started knocking his door and say, hey, Jim, we need to talk about leadership. And he said, no, I don't want. This is about uh, productivity, market, money, blah, 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 financial. Side. No, no, no. We need to talk about leadership. Because they found out a pattern. They found out a pattern in the successful companies that was exactly the opposite of the expected pattern of a leader. Most of the leaders, CEOs and C-level, of the successful company for more than 15 years They were introverts. They really were giving space for the team to participate. None of them were the center of attention and was what finally Collins called, uh, called the leader level five. He used to call it at the end. So they found a pattern that was, a, was what we call today a servant leader, leader. So somebody that is able to really, really give the space and room to everyone to participate, to bring their ideas, to guide them for sure, but in a way that everyone was part and engaged of the situation. That was for me, was such a lesson when I, I, I read that book because That's it's completely the opposite that we expect. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's often, you know, if you think through history, leaders were, you know, often, you know, not that Julius Caesar was a good leader, but, you know, we have these kind of different characters through history and they were determined and they kind of were focused and they maybe didn't listen to people. And there was what they called collateral damage for them to be successful, et cetera, and et cetera. So that's really interesting. You know, Carlos, and you mentioned it, and I'm sure Dan is familiar. There's this whole thing about the vulnerable leader, uh, Renee Brown. There are a lot of books now. It's really a la mode. You know, tell people your weaknesses, cry in front of them. I'm exaggerating here, of course, but it's this idea of being really over empathetic and really opening up and showing your vulnerabilities and weaknesses as a way to show empathy. And I'm wondering how effective is that? And is that also something to be careful of? Because there's a lot about uh, showing your vulnerability. As you show vulnerability, you have greater trust amongst the team because you show your weaknesses and you feel you're in a safe space to be able to do that. And you trust your colleagues enough to respect that and also honor that. I would be cautious about that. We need to understand that Brené Brown was successful and with all respect in certain society, the American society, where the model of the Superman or Wonder Woman is an archetype very present there. And I don't want to give any example because it's obvious. That it was one of the reasons that Brené Brown, when she talks about vulnerability, everybody say, wow, yeah, of course. I mean, she talks mainly about to show that we need each other, and that I think is healthy. I will I will challenge the concept. Empathy in some situation is overrated as a concept. And I will explain you why, because in the way that plays in the brain. The center of empathy and the center of rational analytical uh, thinking, they compete with each other all the time. When one is high, the other one is low. If, if, I, if empathy is activated, I'm not able to do a proper analytical thinking and vice versa. The good leader is the one who knows how to manage those two and when to be empathetic and when to stop empathy and start doing the analytical thinking in a proper way. If not, there's no way to be successful. That applies to many professions, even medicine. And I say it on purpose because you say medical, they need to be very empathetic. If they are very empathetic, they will be crying with their patients and never solving their solution, their problem. To solve the problem, you need to think. And you need to be very analytical to know what to do. So I don't know if I'm explaining myself, but it's a balance between the two of them. Brené Brown was so successful because people were normally in that extreme. So everything was like behaving like a robot, you know? And then she said, hey, you can do something different. But again, I will be cautious with that because you need to know how to balance those two parts of our brain. Make sense? It does. And I think it's a really important thing that you said is that 
in international schools, we are in different cultures, different countries. We have people from all different backgrounds and origins, uh, male and female. And I think that also in a certain culture showing vulnerability. I'm just thinking when I worked many years ago in a Japanese organization, non-educational organization, showing your vulnerability would have not gone very far. That would have not gone down well. Uh, because of the cultural context and the way, you know, interactions were. So I think your point so important is that maybe as leaders and international school leaders, we need to be mindful that what we might perceive as vulnerability being an added plus could be perceived in another culture as a weakness or actually not something very positive. And I think, thank you for bringing up that, you know, Rene Brown's uh, book, which I enjoyed very much, uh, was very American-centric. And I think that's an important message that I want to amplify here in the context of our audience. It's very international. Carlos, in your uh, book... One, yeah. one thing. The real definition of vulnerability is not what we normally understand. Vulnerability is compounded by three. That's three components. One is risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. That is vulnerability. And if you define it in that way, all of us are vulnerable all the time. Risk is there, uncertainty is there, and emotional exposure is there. Makes sense about the difference. Vulnerability yes. is not about weakness. Vulnerability is to recognize the reality that we are facing every day. That we don't know everything. <laughs> That's the truth. That we are under risk. That is true. And our emotions will be involved. Then we talk about the real definition of vulnerability. Thank you for that clarification. I think it's important. And that uncertainty, I think, is really interesting is because sometimes, you know, leaders have to deal with rational and irrational uh people and situations, some, and especially in an international school context, there can be very irrational situations that are out of your control, but in your leadership position, you actually have to engage with it. Talk to us a bit about the, when you're dealing with uncertainty and irrationality, what are some things not to do? Because I know we've talked about this before, and I'm just curious if you, you know, if you're faced with an irrational situation, be it an interpersonal situation with a staff member or a colleague or another leadership team member, what are some things to be careful? Because there's that uncertainty of what not to do and maybe what to consider. You ask me or Dan? I'm asking you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Dan and I want to answer this. I don't know, Dan. Feel yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I need to ask a question. What do you call irrational? How do you define that? I Uncertainty is clear. It, what, what, what do you define as irrational? Irrational is defies logic, and logic can be hard because it can be contextual. I think it's, you know, where you're in a situation that you have no points of reference and it's irrational because you have no points of reference to say, oh, I have had this situation before or I understand that. It's kind of like it doesn't make sense and the behavior is kind of off the charts. And the question is concretely what to do with people. That As a leader, what are some things to be careful when you're dealing with this uncertainty and irrationality? 
Uncertainty is a fact, period, and happens all the time. Irrationality, I will recommend that leader to listen again. Because what we call irrationality maybe is not for the person that is expressing that irrational thinking. There is something behind. Most of the time is fear. And we call it irrational because it doesn't have this kind of, like you say, this uh, rational, let's say, um, uh, understanding. But uh, I question the concept of rationality. Always there is a rational behind that we cannot see it or we cannot understand is a different story. And behind irrational comments or thoughts could be fear. And we need to read between the lines what's going on. That's I don't know really if I'm responding. I don't know if no, I'm no, responding to your question, but, but... No, I think that's a really good point because I think so often when you're a leader, you get a lot of different behaviors. And of sometimes course. because you're trying to manage and juggle a lot, you react to one without maybe really digging deeper or saying, what, what could, what's the other story behind that I don't know about? And how could I find exactly. out about that? Exactly. Uh, and there is a basic rule in the universe, cause and effect. <laughs> when <laughs> Always there is a cause, the cause, I mean, the effect. When somebody says something that sounds irrational, ask again. Good. What Dan, exactly how about trying to say? Thank you, Carlos. Dan, how about you? Because you deal with all kinds of people all over the world. How have you managed kind of this uncertainty, irrational interactions? Because I'm yeah, sure I don't, really I don't really have a good answer. Not not very well, I think. You know, is this probably the answer? Not well because you just ignore it, or you just try to avoid it. Yeah, I guess I, I try to. I probably try to avoid it. To be honest, I think when you, I find it tough to do what I what with people I perceive as being irrational. I just, I, I don't think I know how to, how to do that. You know, even though I know it might be me, it might not, it might just be my perception that that's, that's wrong, you know? Yeah. And I, I think I'm the same. I usually irrational people. I try to avoid. Yeah. And it, and I think what Carlos you're saying is in the heat of the moment of the irrational interaction, you almost have to stop yourself and say, okay, let me not get into, you talked about the, primal brain you know that that kind yeah. of fight and flight mode and kind of trigger yourself to say okay breathe breathe a few times let it just let them be irrational and then let's find a break and then i'll go back and find out why that might be as you said listening to understand and asking clarity oh ask again ask what exactly are you trying to say i mean so many times you know sound irrational the first time and the second time the person is able to go straight to the point not from the beginning, for whatever reason, for fears, whatever, cultural issues, could be cultural. And we are talking about international school where, culture, where so many cultures, I mean, are mixed and are all together. There, is a, there are cultural factors in the way to express certain things that for other cultures can sound irrational. Interesting. Yeah, very good point. Carlos, one thing, you know, there we have all these changes and school leaders and people in leadership in general. It seems the tasks are getting bigger. The responsibility is more complex, more nuanced, uh, you know, intercultural awareness, uh, being able to juggle a lot of tasks, the fast pace of change. How have you seen leadership change in your time? Because you've been doing this for a few years. What are some things that you are noticing with leaders that maybe is challenging, just 
like some general things. I, I don't want to be specific to a trade or an organization or a specific area, but just generally, what are you seeing with the leaders that you're working with? What are some of the challenges they're facing? What is coming to my mind right now is the shift between leadership means I need to do, I, I, I need to have all the response, all the answer, shifting to the team can give me the answer that I don't know. And this, again, we go back to Brené Brown, to recognize that uh, my fallibility, that I can be wrong, or to recognize that not necessarily I know everything. So the model of the, let's say, the MC, the, the, the direct, director of the orchestra, he doesn't know how to play all the instruments, but know how to make them to play together. What is changing is... It's a leader that was having a more powerful place regarding bringing a solution for every situation to a leader that is able to integrate the capacity of their team members, their skills of the team members, and from there to create to, to find the solution. I don't know if I'm explaining myself because it sounds confusing. What I'm trying to say is leaders that were not so eager to involve their people in the solution, moving to leaders that understood that without the input of the team members, it's hard to find the right solution. Yeah. And I think now because there's so many issues and uncertainties, you really need to leverage that uh kind of capacity of all the skills that are around you and not only your leadership team, but maybe faculty members, people on your admin staff of really leveraging that skill set to help you do your job. Yeah. And, and there, there is something that is quite dangerous. I mean, many people in the team will is expecting that the leader will know what we will know what to do all the time. That, that that is a trap. And then the leader can can go that trap. That's why when we say, okay, what, what you said something, we were talking before about, okay, if you bring a problem, bring a solution. No, I don't say bring a solution, bring a proposal of solution because maybe you don't have an experience. And if you cannot bring a proposal of solution, tell me how you're going to analyze the problem. So, Bring something, do your homework. That will many times when I, I'm, I'm coaching leaders and they say, eh, Yeah, because one of the things I recommend is to ask for proposals to the team member. And they say, Yeah, but then it's hard that they will come with something really, really important. And then I, I my response is, Okay, what is the mistake? The mistake is a wrong expectation. If you expect that every time that you ask to your team member, it's going to be a breakthrough response, forget it. It's not going to happen. <laughs> That's not going to happen. So what you need to expect is that whatever they will say will help you, because that happens all the time, to shape your thoughts. That's for sure it's going to happen. So you will be able to think or to bring a different perspective. And maybe at the end will be your proposal, but will not be the same than the beginning. Something is going to change if you listen to your team member. 
is not that your solution or their solution. It's a teamwork. Yeah, Makes and sense? that's interesting. Yeah, and I, I like the way you use the word proposal. You know, propose a solution. Don't come with a solution because you're right. No. That, yeah, yeah. So it's always about the proposal of solution. Or if you don't, then what can you show me or what can you say about analyzing the situation? What what can you see? What are the patterns you're observing? You might not have a proposed solution, but at least you're observing what's going on and highlighting some of the pinch points. And one more thing you brought me to you brought to my mind. In AQ to, to for adaptability coaching, one way to, to induce this is. Don't ask for solution to the team because that puts the brain in a specific mindset solution. This is the problem of the challenge. Ask for what we need to learn from this. If we think in learning, you go to a different pathway in your brain that is more open and that is more productive. If you, if you ask for solutions, that will create a limit on the way of thinking of your people because they will they will feel the pressure of bring a solution no let's bring a learning and from the learning we will find the solution nice it's a shortcut yeah, yeah. but that's a great way well carlos listen it's been fascinating and so appreciate and it's uh great also you know to have dan give some of his perspectives from his job and his organization uh Carlos, I want to remind our audience, uh, the book that definitely you want to consider if you're a school leader, uh, it's called Five Brain Leadership, and that's Carlos Davidich. And of course, you can go to carlosdavidich.com. And then, of course, there's your TED Talk. And uh, thank you, Carlos. As we wrap up, just any little thoughts you want, you know, like a final little statement about leadership that you want people to walk away with like a, a little provocation for them to think about as they uh you know wrap up nobody, listening to it nobody nobody becomes a leader in the night it's a process it's a learning process and don't don't press yourself that because now you are a leader you should know what to do that is an illusion that is, is absolutely wrong. It's a learning process. When somebody's promoted to become a leader means you have the potential to be a leader, not that you are already a leader and you need to learn. Can I, can, I, can I be heavy? Can I ask the two of you for a takeaway from today? I, I like what you said about... Um... When, when, when people are always just bringing you, bringing you criticisms and problems to, to say, come with me with a suggestion for a solution, not, not a solution, but a suggestion, a proposal. Absolutely. That's really good. I, I'm going to use that myself uh, straight away in my, in my work. <laughs> I like uh, what you said about if you uh, ask people to go with solutions that there's a, a, you specified, they go into a mindset or a, a, the brain is working on that sense of pressure and having to deliver something. And if they feel maybe a little inferior, there's going to be even more pressure. They want to make sure they do good. While if you say, what did you learn from this situation? And everybody shares their learning, then together we'll come up with a solution. I found that exactly. very helpful. I love that. Great. Excellent. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Thanks so much, Excellent. Dan and John, to invite me here. I'm really delighted. 
Well, thank you, everybody. And then uh, uh, we'll both go and try what Carlos just told yeah, us. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm going to order it. I haven't read the book, I have to say, but I'm going to order it on Amazon right away. So I'm going to check it out. <laughs> That's great. Thanks. Again, also to our audience, the show notes, Carlos has put a whole bunch of links and reference points. And do go and check out his TED Talk. It's well worth it. A lot of these themes shared in uh, a nice 20 minutes. Carlos, thank you so much. And uh, thank you to our listeners. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Really, thanks a lot, Dan and John.